You know, back in the good old days when uh, we could all meet together, we really enjoyed those Sundays when we'd stay after the church service and share some good food together and have those wonderful potluck luncheons. And of course, we look forward to being able to do that again before long. Well, our scripture passage in the series on Jacob today also centers on the sharing of food. Food is something that both brings people together, but also communicates a message. Some years ago, our church shared a, a gift of food with a newly arrived pastor at another church in town. and We made up a nice gift basket full of tasty uh, food items, uh, coffee and nuts and biscuits and chocolate and other delicious things, and we delivered it to the ch their church just as their Sunday service was beginning. And later that day, someone from that church told us that they presented the, the food basket to the new pastor as he stepped up to the pulpit. And when he saw that it was from another church in the community, he broke into tears and he said, this has never happened before. Well, it was just a small gesture of welcome and friendship, a gift of some food items. But you know, food communicates. And our church often uses food to communicate God's love. Food opens doors. Food matters. And in our culture, too, food is a, a really big deal. You know, TV chefs become celebrities. and New cookbooks are always on the bestseller lists. And fine dining restaurants have sprung up everywhere, though they're having a challenging time right now. And for a time, our youngest daughter worked in a business called Gourmet Warehouse, and they sell everything to do with cooking and from fancy cooking utensils to specialty cooking ingredients. And it was becoming a really booming, expanding business. So obviously, a lot of people do take the time to cook and to savor the experience, to sit down with others and enjoy a good meal. But then there's many others who don't take the time for the, uh, the experience. You know, they just eat on the run like it's in-flight refueling. And, you know, most rapid growth in supermarket sales these days is in takeout food. And many people have also given up sitting down to meals. You know, they just graze through the day with snacks. And but food matters, and uh, meals matter too. And I mean meals together. Shared meals are full of significance. They're meant to be more than, than just a feeding frenzy. You know, each one of us started our life eating with eating as a, an experience of intimate communion between mother and child at breast or with bottle. And our nourishment there was not only from the milk, but from the relationship. Being fed was a relational experience. So eating in its deepest meaning is to be a shared experience of communion and fellowship among family and friends. The word companion comes from a Latin word, come, meaning together, and the word panis, meaning bread, companion. And that means that any person that you share bread with is likely to be a friend or at least someone who's well on the way to becoming one. Many women have also discovered that the way to a man's heart is through his stomach. <laughs> My wife's father was a pastry chef, and he taught his daughter a few things. And so Kim's good cooking and uh, baking no doubt have had an influence on my heart. So eating meals together is about 
more than just food. <laughs> Meals are social occasions. They're relational. And they represent welcome, friendship, and community. A gift of food is a gesture of love. In fact, uh, God's very first gift to humans in the book of Genesis was food. So no wonder the, <clears throat> the experience of eating is so uh, delightful to us. <clears throat> Genesis 2 verse 9a says, And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. But food can also be dangerous. Not just because we tend to eat too much either. <laughs> you know, God's first command to Adam and Eve had to do with eating in Genesis 2, 16 to 17. Where it says, And the Lord God commanded the man, you are, to, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. And then the very next thing, the first sin that also took place was in that very context. Genesis 3.11. And he, God, said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? So eating was the context of Adam and Eve's fall into sin. And so eating is both enjoyable, but it can be dangerous at times. You see, well, Jesus, the second Adam, he also faced that temptation in regard to eating. Matthew 4, verses 3 and 4 says, The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. But unlike Adam, Jesus passed the test. Jesus even defined his mission on earth by using the imagery of eating. In John 6, verse 35a, it says, Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. So Jesus invites us to sustain our spiritual lives on him, to eat of him. And of course, the memorial that he leaves us of himself is also a meal. He says, take and eat. This is my body broken for you. Even the final consummation of the kingdom is described in Revelation 19 as a great banquet to which we are invited, the wedding supper of the Lamb. So food is not only for nutrition, but for, for fellowship. And not only fellowship between people, but also fellowship with God. Now, the story of Jacob that we began last week takes place uh, under very ordinary, everyday kind of circumstances, as we'll see, working, traveling, sleeping, dreaming, and eating, especially eating. And we saw Jacob, the younger son, actually use a meal, a simple pot of red stew, to cheat his older brother Esau out of his birthright. And today we will see him use a steak dinner to deceive his father Isaac and steal Esau's blessing. Now Jacob has a righteous longing for blessing in his life, but he goes about obtaining it in unrighteous ways. As we saw last week, the, the word of God was given to Rebekah and Isaac that their younger son, not the older one, as it normally was, would inherit the birthright and the blessing. Now, the birthright was the inheritance of the father's property, and the blessing was the inheritance of leadership and power in the family. 
being the deceiver and manipulator that Jacob is, he's not willing to wait and just let God bring about it all as promised. So in this way, the story of Jacob is very mundane, ordinary, down to earth. You see, Jacob has an emotionally distant father and an overbearing mother. His parents there, Isaac and Rebekah, well, they don't even relate very well to each other. Each of them ends up taking solace in their favorite child. Isaac loves his son Esau, the outdoorsman, who can bring him tasty food from the fields. And Rebekah loves the more sophisticated son, Jacob, who prefers just hanging out around home. And all four of these family members have personal designs on the blessing that's to be conferred by Isaac before he dies. And so this is the setting for an intense and fateful drama that we see played out in Genesis 27. And this drama unfolds in four scenes. And in each scene, two players interact. Scene one is Isaac and Esau, where the father prepares to bless his older son. Scene two is Rebekah and Jacob, where the the mother schemes for her younger son to get the blessing. Scene three is Jacob and Isaac, where the younger son deceives the father. And scene four is Esau and Isaac, where the father grieves with his older son. Now, I don't know if you've ever been to a, a dinner theater. You know, some restaurants used to serve a meal while you watched a stage play being enacted. And it was usually kind of an interactive whodunit kind of thing, a murder mystery kind of play where people could participate. And so we can look at this drama, this dramatic story here, as a sort of whodunit, kind of like a murder mystery without the murder. Almost a murder, but not quite. And the plot is based on deceit and deception. So first I wanted to ask ourselves, though, who's to blame here in this drama? Who's the guilty party? And I'll even give you a hint. If we go back to Genesis 3 for just a moment and ask who's to blame for that original first sin in the Garden of Eden. Remember, it had to do with eating the forbidden food. Was it Adam's fault by failing to keep that serpent out of the garden or, and then standing silently by while Eve was deceived? Or was it Eve's fault, as Adam so quickly suggested? Or was it the serpent's fault, as Eve readily pointed out? Well, God says, Adam, did you eat the fruit? Adam says, it's that woman you gave me. <laughs> and God says to Eve, what's this you have done? And she says, the serpent deceived me. And the serpent, well, he doesn't have a finger to point. (laughs) But you know, God makes it clear through the judgments that follow here on each of them that they're all at fault. And yet even this, this ugly scene here in the garden comes to with a message of hope, ultimately. God's purpose for his people's ultimate good will stand can't be derailed or frustrated by human failures. So the scene in the garden is tragic, but there is a happy ending, and it's really good news for you and me. Now, even though our sin may have lasting earthly consequences, it doesn't have to derail God's gracious purpose in our life. 
That's because He has provided a way through the second Adam, through Jesus, the one who passed the test. And here in this drama in Genesis 27, we see this same principle at work. God's goodness and His purpose being accomplished despite the sins and failures of His people. As Joseph said of his situation back in Genesis 50 there, God turned to good what they meant for evil. So let's listen to scene one here, Genesis 27, verses 1 to 4. Enter Isaac and Esau. When Isaac was old and his eyes were so weak that he could no longer see, he called for Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son, here I am, he answered. Isaac said, I am now an old man and don't know the day of my death. Now then, get your equipment, your quiver and bow, and go out in the open country to hunt some wild game for me. Prepare me the kind of tasty food I like and bring it to me to eat so that I may give you my blessing before I die. Well, Isaac here is about 100 years old at this point, though he doesn't actually die for a long time yet. His eyesight is gone. He spends most of his time on the couch. And his only pleasure in life seems to be this tasty wild game that his son Esau kills on his hunting trips. And so Isaac is, is thinking that it's time now to pass on to the next generation the family blessing that he received from his father Abraham. And it's the promise that he would become a great nation as numerous as the stars of the sky. But despite the prophecy that was given before the birth of his sons, that the older would serve the younger, Isaac is determined to bless his favorite son, Esau, the older one, who brings him the, the nice, tasty food. Now, Isaac knows about the prophecy, but it's his palate that controls his life. And his physical blindness is matched by a kind of a, a spiritual blindness. Now, the passing on of the, the blessing was supposed to be a family event, a public affair with everybody present, kind of like a graduation. But Isaac decides to try and sneak it in, you know, do it privately, just him and Esau there before anyone else can interfere. You know, sometimes as, as parents, uh, we do something like this too. You know, we have our own dream for our child and when things are not going according to the dream, you know, we want to fix it. I was proud of my, my son when he did really well in school, and I kind of pushed him to go on to university right after high school. But I was blind to the fact that he wasn't really ready. He didn't know what he wanted to do yet, and he just really needed a year to kind of figure things out for himself. But I rather blindly pushed, and he complied and went away to university. But I didn't see his resentment until he fell into depression in his second year. And only then I understood that he needed to take time to become his own person before carrying on with his education. And so I had to repent of trying to bless him with my own dream for his life. Well, Isaac wants to bless his oldest son, but his own desires too got, got involved, got in the way here. Even as he prepares to secretly give Esau the blessing. Isaac's sensual desires take over. 
And he first of all sends Esau out to get him his, his favorite tasty meal. So let's listen to what happens in scene two, verses five to 17. Enter Rebekah and Jacob. Now Rebekah was listening as Isaac spoke to his son Esau. And when Esau left for the open country to hunt game and bring it back, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, look, I overheard your father say to your brother Esau, bring me some game and prepare me some tasty food to eat so that I may give you my blessing in the presence of the Lord before I die. Now, my son, listen carefully and do what I tell you. Go out to the flock and bring me two choice young goats so I can prepare some tasty food for your father just the way he likes it. Then take it to your father to eat so that he may give you his blessing before he dies. Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, But my brother Esau is a hairy man while I have smooth skin. What if my father touches me? I would appear to be tricking him and would bring down a curse on myself rather than a blessing. His mother said to him, My son, let the curse fall on me. Just do what I say. Go and get them for me. And so he went and got them and brought them to his mother, and she prepared some tasty food just the way his father liked it. Then Rebekah took the best clothes of Esau, her older son, which she had in the house, and put them on her younger son, Jacob. She also covered his hands and the smooth part of his neck with the goat skins. And then she handed to her son, Jacob, the tasty food and the bread she had made. You know, it's never wise to stand between a mother and her prospects for her favorite son, especially a Jewish mother. <laughs> but you know, this family was not working together, mainly because the father offers no spiritual leadership. The two parents who once prayed together fervently for a son have now chosen to take sides over the twins. And when Rebecca here eavesdrops and overhears Isaac's plans for Esau, she goes to bat for Jacob, her favorite son. You see, Jacob was her personal favorite, but more than that, God's promise was that the older should serve the younger, and that still haunted Rebekah. But now it looked like Isaac was going to just mess it all up here, and once that blessing was given, it couldn't be reversed. So time was short. So what's a believing wife to do? Surely she thinks that the ends will justify the means. And so this time it was Rebekah's turn to take Satan's shortcut she dresses Jacob as a, in a charade to deceive the blind old man into thinking that it's Esau. Maybe you recognize this kind of uh, temptation in life. You know, Satan comes and he suggests that God's promises and God's ways are taking a long time to work out. Maybe if I just gave God a little help. And Satan comes doing that. And he says, I know that this plan here, my plan is not that kosher, but how can it be wrong when it's going to bring about something so good? And that's the way the tempter works. You know, Jesus faced this kind of temptation when Satan came to him in the wilderness when he was hungry and he offered him all kinds of kingdoms in the world, all the kingdoms of the world. If, if Jesus would only bow down and worship him, 
Wouldn't it be a much easier way, a simpler way for Jesus to reign over the earth? He could avoid all that pain and unpleasantness of going to the cross. But Jesus completely rejected Satan's shortcut. Away from me, Satan, he said. That's what we have to say, too. So it's not enough that the goal be right. The means of achieving it must be right, too. As the Apostle Paul indicates, we cannot win the prize unless we follow the rules. So the question we have to answer here is, can God fulfill his promises without our help? Do you trust him? Well, like Rebecca, we have a choice between faith and unbelief. And she should know that that nothing is impossible for God. He's faithful to his promises, no matter how things may appear to us in the moment. But Rebecca here has her own plan, and so she disguises Jacob as Esau and sends him off with a steak dinner. And here comes scene three, verses 18 to 29. Enter Jacob with Isaac. He went to his father and said, My father? Yes, my son, he answered. Who is it? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Please sit up and eat some of my game so that you may give me your blessing. Isaac asked his son, How did you find it so quickly, my son? The Lord your God gave me success, he replied. Then Isaac said to Jacob, Come near so I can touch you, my son, to know whether you really are my son Esau or not. Jacob went close to his father Isaac, who touched him and said, The voice is the voice of Jacob, but the hands are the hands of Esau. He did not recognize him, for his hands were hairy like those of his brother Esau, so he proceeded to bless him. Are you really my son Esau, he asked. I am, he replied. Then he said, my son, bring me some of your game to eat so that I may give you my blessing. Jacob brought it to him and he ate and he brought some wine and he drank. And Then his father Isaac said to him, come here, my son, and kiss me. So he went to him and kissed him. And when Isaac caught the smell of his clothes, he blessed him and said, ah, the smell of my son is like the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed May God give you heaven's dew and earth's richness and abundance of grain and new wine. May nations serve you and peoples bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may the sons of your mother bow down to you. May those who curse you be cursed and those who bless you be blessed. So the blessing was given. But there's so much irony in this scene. In Genesis 3, back there, God had clothed Adam and Eve in animal skin as a picture of the gospel. It was a demonstration of God's grace providing a covering for sin. But here, Jacob uses animal skin to cover sin in another way, to deceive his father about his identity. It's also ironic that Jacob is now asking for the blessing from his father that he had always longed for but had never received. He's the classic study of a man who grows up in a home with an absent or emotionally distant father and who strives all his life to win his father's blessing. But sadly, 
Jacob has to pretend to be someone else to get it. Now, many men today secretly or, or even unknowingly or seek the blessing of their fathers that has never been given. They've never received their father's affirmation or approval, that important transaction between father and son. Well, twice here, Isaac asked Jacob who he is. Are you really my son Esau? It's a really tense moment here. <laughs> Martin Luther once said at this point in the drama, if he had been Jacob, he would have dropped the dish. <laughs> but Jacob, that old smoothie, pulls it off and I am Esau, your firstborn, he says. Well, the third irony is that uh, given Isaac's attachment to tasty wild game, he can't even tell the difference between Rebekah's homegrown lamb chops or goat chops and Esau's free-range deer steaks. Even his taste buds let him down. You see, only Isaac's hearing told him the truth. The voice sounded like Jacob, but his other senses caused him to disbelieve his ears. And this was Isaac's problem. He was too sensuous. He wouldn't believe his ears. You know, unlike Rebecca, he wouldn't listen to the word of God that the older would serve the younger. Instead, he, he goes with his tactile senses rather than listening. And many people are that way today. They refuse to listen to the truth. And so Isaac goes ahead with the blessing here and an act that he could not reverse once it was he'd given himself through his, his words. And so the blessing here goes the same way as the birthright to the one that God had actually all, always intended it for, Jacob. And even if we're uncomfortable with Jacob's tactics here, the blessing of God has its way. God is strangely at work for Jacob. He even works through this whole messy scenario to achieve his holy purpose. Jacob's descendants will be blessed with the earth's abundance and with the servants of the service of the nations and the leadership of the family. Well, the final scene, scene four, is a pathetic scene. Verses 30 to 30, 41. Enter Esau with Isaac. After Isaac finished blessing him and Jacob had scarcely left his father's presence, his brother Esau came in from hunting. He too prepared some tasty food and brought it to his father. Then he said to him, My father, please sit up and eat some of my game so that you may give me your blessing. His father Isaac asked him, Who are you? I am your son, he answered, your firstborn, Esau. Isaac trembled violently and he said, Who was it then that, haunt, that hunted game and brought it to me? I ate it just before you came and I blessed him and indeed he will be blessed. When Esau heard his father's words, he burst out with a loud and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, me too, my father. But he said, Your brother came deceitfully and took your blessing. Esau said, Isn't he rightly named Jacob? This is the second time he has taken advantage of me. He took my birthright and now he has taken my blessing. Then he asked, Haven't you reserved any blessing for me? 
And Isaac answered Esau, I have made him Lord over you and have made all his relatives his servants. And I have sustained him with grain and new wine. So what can I possibly do for you, my son? Esau said to his father, Do you have only one blessing, my father? Bless me too, my father. And then Esau wept aloud. His father Isaac answered him, Your dwelling will be away from the earth's richness, away from the dew of heaven above. You will live by the sword and you will serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you will throw his yoke from off your neck. Esau held a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing his father had given him. He said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are near. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. So it's a pathetic scene. You know, it's easy to feel sorry for Esau who was cheated out of his blessing. But it was the logical outcome of the earlier deal that Esau had made with Jacob, giving away his birthright for a bowl of stew. It wasn't important to him at the time. Esau wanted the blessing, but, but not the lifestyle that the blessing would require. And we see there's no evidence in Esau's life of seeking God or of separating himself from the world. Esau, like his father Isaac, idolized appetite and sensuality. His idolatry was that of making his ultimate concern something other than the one who is ultimate. So the deal he made over the stew was now fulfilled over the steak. Meals can be dangerous, full of spiritual consequences. See, Isaac can't just recall his blessing, you know, like a car manufacturer recalls a production error. No, once it's spoken, it's done. And Isaac realizes that it's God here who's had the last word. And he won't allow that blessing to take place for Esau. So empty-handed, Isaac then tries to fashion something of a blessing for Esau, but it's pathetic. Esau gets a kind of an anti-blessing. He'll be removed from the earth's richness. He will serve his brother, though not forever. Isaac says to him, but you will throw his yoke off your neck. Even here, there is ultimately some grace for Esau. The question of the whole drama, though, is who's to blame? Is it Isaac? Is it Rebekah? Is it Jacob? Or is it Esau? Well, we know that they're all at fault. Each of them is self-seeking, self-trusting, self-serving, using each other and trying to use God for their own ends. And their sins in this drama will come back to haunt each of them. Jacob will have a Long, hard road to walk before Isaac's blessing will see any fulfillment in his life. But God's purpose in blessing still stands. They may have meant it for evil, but God will use it for good. The good news for you and me is that Jesus says to us what Rebekah had said to Jacob, let the curse fall on me. Rebecca said it carelessly, never knowing what it might mean for her, but Jesus said it knowing the full depths of what he was saying. He took 
your curse so that you might inherit his blessing. And grasping that, that gospel truth can bring about a deep change in your heart. Knowing the awful price that's been paid for your sin helps enable you to say no to sin. And it means that every time you do sin, you can turn to the cross for forgiveness because the curse fell on Jesus for us. So we shouldn't have to ask who's to blame, but know that it's us, it's me. And then turn it over to the one who took the blame for us. You see, at the cross, there is sufficient grace to cover all your sin, no matter who you are or what you have done. Praise be to God for his blessing.